Changemakers, welcome back to The Catalyst. Fun fact, I recently went viral on TikTok speaking to the idea that we should always be pivoting in life. The idea that we should always be entering new eras and being successful in each one. Today we have with us a very inspiring woman who is in her successful young executive era. Welcome to The Catalyst, Ariel Patrick. Hi, I always like to say this is the joke that never dies. I am Ariel at Ariel. Ariel Investment is a 40-year-old firm that I did not found, but I do love when people think I am the founder. It's kind of a fun accident. <laughs> I love that. We love like serendipity in that way. Speaking of serendipity, The New Yorker recently published an article speaking to the decline of humanities majors in colleges because students are feeling that they won't be able to secure jobs post-graduation with an English degree. And I talk about serendipity because both you and I studied the humanities in college and we now work in business and financial services to be exact. And so I was wondering, do you feel that your background, your training in the humanities has helped you in your professional life or do you feel you've succeeded where you are now despite your humanities training? Absolutely has helped. Um, like many trades, uh, finance, but then also communications, which is where I sit, requires diligent and persistent research, um, a deep, deep penchant for analysis, writing skills are incredibly important. And so I can't think of a more, a better training ground than the humanities um, for all of those things. I studied classics, ancient Greek and Latin, um, language, history, literature. I quite literally was focus on when I wrote my thesis and my junior paper undergrad, finding needles in haystacks. I always joke that I can find any piece of data I'm looking for and break it down. So definitely these core skills are incredibly important. I think part of the reason why people perhaps these days feel that they need to study something more trade oriented rather than academic is because they're just kind of misinformed about the core skills that are needed to succeed and also the importance of having a flexible set of skills. So if I had studied communications or PR or advertising undergrad, which wouldn't have been possible where I went anyway, because I, I went to Princeton where it was humanities or science or math, that was it. Um, but, you know, if I had say gone to a state school and studied communications or PR, it would have been basically impossible for me to become a multi-hyphenate or switch careers later on. Uh, because I would have such a fixed and limited educational background. So I think people actually should realize that uh, studying academics actually gives you more flexibility and helps you, you know, increase your intellectual capacity, which can be applicable to any career. I always say everything else can be learned in the field. Uh, doing as many internships as possible in college, that will beef up your work experience so that you can enter the workforce very quickly um, and making sure that, you know, the first few years of your career, you are a voracious learner, you know, a sponge learning, looking, listening to everything around you. That's how you get ahead. It's not because of what you majored in in college. I completely agree with that. And I do think just because of the economic outlook, there is a lot of fear. You're taking a risk almost. And I know I felt the same way. I felt like, oh, I can't study 
romance and medicine literatures, which is what my degree is in, because I said, oh, I won't be able to get a job. And then I got to the point where I loved the courses so much. I resonated so much with the department. I just didn't tell my mom what I was studying. And I was like, I'll get a job and then I'll turn around and talk about what I studied. <laughs> just so there's no fear on her end. Because I think that's a big part, especially as an immigrant, especially from someone coming from a background where you're taught that like you go to school to then get a job. So it's incredible to hear from you that your humanities training has aided you in such a way. And especially what you said about it's really the experience that'll help you. I think that goes understated a bit. And to the point of experience and just really being in the field, you once said in an interview that you focus less on milestones and more on commitment. And from my point of view, I feel that with each milestone that we obtain in life, it comes with a whole new set of like maintenance, just to be able to maintain the blessings that come out of that. So could you tell us with each milestone that you've arrived at, what sort of commitments did you make in the sense that how did you commit yourself to becoming a whole new level of yourself in order to get to the next milestone and then the next one? It's an interesting one. The word commitment is very interesting because in order to be deeply committed to something, you have to attribute a lot of physical time, but also emotional energy. And in order to carve out space for that emotional energy that requires an enormous amount of flexibility, willingness to be nimble, willingness to be forgiving with yourself if you trip and fall. So I actually think in a way, being more flexible with myself and with what I attribute or consider to be the definition of success has actually only unlocked more opportunities. That sounds very abstract, so I'm trying to think of an example, but it's not too different from you know, being an athlete. I'm one of those people who works out at 5 a.m. every single day, and I consider that a very important tool in my toolbox. You know, if you enter the gym or enter a lift or a run or something with a limited sense of yourself or fear, right, or trying to sort of think ahead, I'm going to be so tired at the end of this, you will only struggle. Whereas you kind of walk in, and this is how I approach anything, whether it be work or the gym, assuming that anything is possible, whatever it is that's thrown my way, I will finish it. I can trust myself to succeed. And then everything else from there can only be a pleasant surprise. So I don't walk into any one situation, game planning it out five years ahead or wondering, ooh, is this going to be a struggle? I just kind of walk in with that brazen confidence that my parents instilled in me that says, well, if other people can do this, then I can do it too. It's definitely that confidence that gets instilled in you. I resonate with that so much, especially in the contents of the workplace, because I think that if you don't have an inherent sense of I can do this, you're going to tumble and fall. And a question that I have for you is, what is your advice to young women who struggle with this sort of self-doubt in the context of professional life, right? We're so used to having this five-year plan because we're ambitious, we're hard workers, we won't do it all. But, you know, your advice of you just come in and focus on the present moment and executing on the present moment. So in order to do that, how do we get over that fear? And how did you get over that fear if you had any at the very beginning of your career? I always say that preparedness is the best armor. It protects you. So being the most prepared in the room is the best way to overcompensate when, say, for example, you're starting your career and you're the least experienced in the room or you're just starting out and you're green, doing as much research as possible, anticipating all the questions you might be asked in a meeting, writing every single note and reviewing it diligently and coming prepared to the next meeting with those takeaways from the prior meeting, right? All of these things, I think, 
can overcompensate for imposter syndrome. I do think that sometimes when people suffer from, from imposter syndrome, perhaps along with that is maybe not the most diligent or the most in-depth prep. So you can march into a meeting with full confidence knowing that you've done your homework. And until you're able to say, I'm the most seasoned person in the room, and until you're able to say, I'm the one that has the most experience, the only thing you can rely on is preparedness. And this is where our humanities training comes in, the ability to research deeply, to extract information, and then sort of know how to distill that into a key point or a key takeaway. And someone that I admire also says that action cures anxiety. So that's something I've been thinking about in terms of imposter syndrome and self-doubt, especially at the beginning of my career. And also, I want to ask you, when you went about sort of developing yourself as a professional, did you think about mentorship? Did you think about sponsorship? Did you think about how to become someone that the people you admire would want to cultivate and would want to mentor? I think the word mentorship is a bit overused and misguided these days because it implies a one-way street, right? One person is in service to the other. I focus pretty much on relationships. So building relationships with people who not only I can benefit from knowing, but for whom I think I have something to add. So that was kind of how I approached it. Honestly, earlier in my career, it was thinking about what do I possibly have in common with this person that could be the launch pad for me reaching out? And then how do I invest in that relationship going forward? Am I inviting them to industry events that are happening that my firm is doing that they might be interested in? Am I sending them content that I read over the weekend in the New York Times that might be interesting to them? Am I sharing knowledge based on client work that I'm doing uh, that perhaps might add some texture to their everyday job. And then of course, the beautiful byproduct of that is when we do get a chance to have a meal every once in a while, because of course you don't want to take up too much of your mentor's time, you get this beautiful advice and you also have someone that you can call if you do have an issue. But I didn't enter any relationships really coming up with a transactional point of view. It was more focused on finding those bridges between me and people that I admired and hustling as much as I wanted them to for me to be of service to them. And you spoke about sharing things that might be of interest to them, inviting them to industry events, but how would you say, or what would your advice be if you're going about it where you're dealing with someone so much more senior than you that would already sort of have these access and already sort of be reading the New York Times? So like in that point of view, how do you contribute to that relationship or how do you build that relationship? I don't think that necessarily means that you don't have anything to add, right? So if you're truly studying, looking at news coming from the firm that they work at, and you're studying what their point of view is and what they're working on, it's okay to send them something that they may have read and say, I'm not sure if you saw this, but I thought this was really interesting. I'd love to talk to you about it someday, right? And chances are, maybe they haven't read it because they're overwhelmed and doing other things. Or you could use it as a starting point to ask a question. For example, you, Audrey, are at... Lazard, I just saw yesterday this article about Ken Jacobs stepping down, possibly have any points of view on how this might impact your job. I'd love to sort of hear more about your perspective, right? Um, they're just conversation starters, but I do think that people enter into mentorship relationships and basically from there routinely siphon energy from that person as opposed to thinking about what they can put on their table. Yeah, I feel like I always want to go back to that researching aspect of it. 
where you're just naturally taught to always look for things that may not always be on the surface. So if you're reading something in the New York Times, like, oh, this might be helpful to this person, or this might be something so-and-so is interested in, kind of that becoming a daily habit for you. And I want to talk about your expertise in communications and how you've sort of seen the landscape change over the past decade or so. Is it different when you're trying to communicate the essence of a brand to the public or I guess a company? And is it different from trying to communicate the essence of a person, I guess a personal brand to the public? And in your work, how have you seen that sort of communication change in terms of what people respond to now versus what they did say five or 10 years ago? Yeah, I think what's different is that now more than ever reputation is the epicenter of risk. So whether it be an individual who is possibly at any point on the brink of getting canceled or a company who might get called out for business practices that aren't aligned with what their consumer or other constituent values, we are in an era where a negative tweet can take a stock. Like when Kylie Jenner said, does anyone use Snap anymore? And Snap Inc. went like this. So, and for those who are listening, if you're not seeing on video, I just went, I pointed downward. So I think it's actually that the same level of fanaticism around measuring the level of trust that you have with your stakeholders and thinking about how you're viewed and ways to articulate altruism and show that you're living your values day in and day out. That applies to individuals. It applies to corporations. It's sort of all one and the same. Whereas I do think 10 years ago, Companies always had a no comment comment type of stance. It was pretty much a locked box. And there was an assumption that people understood that you didn't have to disclose very much or discuss very much about your business unless you had something material to say. Now everyone wants to know everything all the time. So how do you balance that is, of course, a, you know an important level of priority that you have to really think about. But I'm always thinking about the individual reputations of our executives in addition to how each stakeholder that interacts with our firm views our firm and whether we're trustworthy to them, whether we've done enough to earn or in some cases repair that trust with them. And the same goes for, for anything else. The point of trust, this is something that has been my biggest takeaway in my first year of investment banking because banking is such a team sport that everyone on the team has to trust that everyone is doing their job and can actually execute on what is being asked of them. When we think about beginning our careers, or I guess even in our own lives, how do you think about who you are becoming? And relating it to you, because this is an interview about you, how did you think about who you were becoming? And how did you commit yourself to that in building a reputation and building a career and all the things that interested you? I think consistency is key, right? I think that if you are someone who truly is presenting yourself in an authentic way, if someone is giving a speech at your birthday party, that's your boss versus your friend from childhood versus your friend from college, you should be hearing similar themes from all of those people. If you're somebody who presents yourself differently in different rooms, that does little to establish a brand. And that's not rooted in authenticity. So to me, my goal is like on my funeral day, everyone is talking about the same attributes that they loved about me, no matter how they interacted with me at any point in my life. Yeah, I just think staying consistent, being who you are and not trying to force yourself into a mold based on what environments you're in. Of course, there's certain conduct and behavior that is more than appropriate in certain work environments, but that's not the same thing as showing who you are, right? You may behave slightly differently in different environments, but the root of who you're showing yourself to be should be the same. 
Right, right. And that really does come with knowing yourself, which I think is a very solitary practice. I find journaling to be very helpful for this and just life, you know, because you'll go through things and the takeaway is always something that helps you or teaches you something. And speaking on reputation, you also have a bit of a reputation as an impactful art collector. What has been your biggest lesson in your art collecting journey? Because I find that what I love about art is that it allows people to reveal themselves by what they see. So it's such a lovely social activity to bond with people in that way. And so in your collecting journey, in your artistic journey, what has been your biggest lesson and what are the ways in which you find yourself in art? Sure. I think what makes my collection unique is that I know pretty much every artist in my collection, except for, you know, I do have a couple very old pieces by deceased artists that, you know, are historically significant, but the majority of them are artists that either I've supported since the beginning of their careers because we met some at some point in New York City or people who I've become interested in and introduced myself to and gotten to know. And, you know, I enjoy spreading the word about their careers and helping support them. So I guess what it's learned to me is just the power of relationships and trust. There's nothing on any wall in my house that I don't absolutely love seeing every day. And it's not just because they're beautiful, but it's because it reminds me of the human behind it. Who knows if I had a bunch of Monet's, I don't know if I would feel as connected to them day in and day out, but these pieces move me because I know the stories of how they were created, why they were created, what that person saw. I love to visit studios of artists to actually hear them talk about that. I also have some artists come to my home and bring pieces that they're working on that are new. So that engagement is a big piece of just going back to my core values, which involve investing in relationships. Right. And I really love that takeaway relationships and trust. As I mentioned earlier, that's been my biggest takeaway from my first year in banking, which is the necessity of trust and also what I've sort of come to learn over the years, which is relationships are truly number one and how you care for them and cultivate them. We began this interview talking of the necessity of being in a successful era and you just entered a new era, which is that of being a mom, which is so incredible. What would your advice be for, first of all, how is that, by the way? Because that's the first question. How is being a mother? What is that like? How do you feel about it? Tell us. We want to know. I think the only word I can use is magic. Everything that she does inspires me. Just seeing someone's brain develop day in and day out is really cool. It's literally like watching the synapses connect. It's an honor and it's magical to be such an integral part of someone's development. And I take it incredibly seriously. It's a heavy weight to think about choosing your words carefully and how you engage with someone because you know that it will formulate who they are. So yeah, I, I would say magic. <laughs> incredible, incredible. I have a baby sister who just turned six in April. Watching her grow was the most incredible thing. And as someone who looks forward to motherhood and knows that that's something that I definitely want, what would your advice be for young women considering motherhood and being a professional? Because that's a very real consideration. And as someone who's navigating it, and beautifully, might I add, what has been your lessons thus far? Oh, thank you. So I will admit that I did not know for sure that I had children. I was someone who very, very much identified through their career. And I'm still that person, but my view of myself and what I have to add has expanded. So I identify equally as much as an executive as I do a friend, a daughter, a sister, a mother, a wife. And so it's interesting. Motherhood actually helped me 
realize how many other hats I have. And it's actually inspired me to back to the theme of relationships to continue prioritizing those other relationships and those other titles that I have to the other people who depend on me, just prioritizing them, taking them seriously. So yeah, I mean, I got married in August, 2021, which was quite recent. And um, my daughter's about to turn one next week. So it's safe to say it was definitely a surprise that we uh, got pregnant so quickly. Um, and at first I was petrified, truly. I mean, crippled with fear. What am I going to do? Is this going to hold me back? And what I realized is that women are some of the most exquisite creatures on earth. We adapt. We find hours in the day that we didn't know existed. We find extra arms in our body, right? I literally have extra appendages. Um, I can hold my daughter, roll a conference call, and make a bottle all at the same time. I think the, the thing that I would say is don't overfocus on being prepared. Don't overthink it. If you think that motherhood is something that you're interested in, even with a small inkling, just go for it. <laughs> or if it happens organically, don't be afraid of it. It's the most beautiful thing. But also I, I see and I hear women who don't want to be mothers and, and who mother in other ways. They mother their friends. They mother their nieces and nephews. They mother people who depend on them. So there are just many ways to be a guardian. And I, I do see and acknowledge that. I do find that a lot of my mentees, women who are in their 20s and early 30s, are constantly asking me this question. And I basically just tell them, you're never going to be ready if you think about it too hard, right? You're always going to find a reason why it's inconvenient to get pregnant, why you don't want to take time off of work or yada, 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 but you'll figure it out. Exactly. Figuring out. And it goes back to what you said about commitments and carving time off of those commitments and investing in your relationship. And in rounding up this interview, how do you see the next chapter of you unfolding? in the sense of maybe professional or personal, or what are you most looking forward to? Because I feel like we live in such a special time right now where we've just got out of the pandemic officially, right? But we still remember what it was like and all those lessons that came with it. So looking forward with you know the new journey of being a wife, of being a mother, of being an incredible young executive on Wall Street, an inspiring one, a black female trailblazer, like with all of these things that you have so preciously in your hands, what is next or what are you looking forward to? First of all, thank you for the kind words. It's really nice to hear um, and be seen by somebody because, you know, we're always our biggest critics. So I don't always actually sit and say, wow, this is what's on my plate. This is what I have. That's really precious. So thank you. I think that my focus for the future is to stop trying to fit who I'm becoming into the mold of who I was before. I mean, can I fit into this dress anymore? The answer is probably not. My body has changed. Am I still going to be able to do XYZ social events until whatever hour? The answer is no, I can't anymore. But finding new ways to have those same relationships and also invest in myself without looking back or having any sort of nostalgia or was just giving myself the flexibility and the space and the grace to just become who I am is what I'm focused on. I love that. I love that. And in closing, I'm thinking of becoming, right, Michelle Obama. And I'm thinking of a quote by Vice President Kamala Harris that always sticks with me when she said what can be and burdened by what has been. And this is a quote that sort of just plays over and over in my head because the biggest question I've asked myself the past year is who am I becoming? 
and I look to women like you and I'm like a little bit of her and to all of the change makers listening especially to young women I think that this interview is really special and something I was really looking forward to doing because I just wanted all of us to think about the fact that there is so much for us out there success and career success in life because truly Ariel like you are the definition of success to be undoubtedly successful and beautiful is an incredible thing. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm rooting for you. Please know that if you need anything, advice, a cocktail, I'm around. <laughs> incredible, incredible. Thank you. Changemakers, how absolutely incredible was that conversation with Ariel Patrick? I mean, to be both beautiful and undoubtedly successful is an incredible thing to be. And in the case of Ariel, to be both beautiful, undoubtedly successful, and an inspiration, what a trifecta. Changemakers, if you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. The best way you can let me know is by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or anywhere else you found us and by commenting on the episode's page on our website at changemakerswelcome.com. I want to make sure that I am bringing people onto this platform that bring value to you, changemakers, because truly this is about curating conversations and having critical conversations with the most interesting and inspiring people around. And if they're not interesting or inspiring to you, there's simply no need to do that. So let me know. And until next time, ciao.